Sign up for the newsletter so you never miss an update. Click, pay, and download instantly. Welcome to the podcast. So you know how these podcast ads go, right? We read a spiel, blah, blah, blah. We give you a promo code for a discount, the end. But this one is a little bit different because this ad is for Honey and Honey ad doesn't just give you one promo code. A Honey ad gives you millions of promo codes. That's right, millions of promo codes in one ad. I've actually used Honey and I've saved so much money with it. I used it yesterday, in fact. Kaoni, my son, was buying something online. We have our Honey browser extension installed and when we came to check out, a little pop-up came on the screen and said, hey, would you like to have Honey find you a promo code for this? And we were able to save like five bucks. You know, I know some people have saved like hundreds of dollars. It scours the internet for coupon codes that work with sites. And guess what? It's completely free, which is crazy. So when you shop, no matter where it is, Honey will automatically fill in the promo code box for you at checkout, but it's not just gonna fill it with one. It fills out with all of them that that exist and, and sees which ones still work, which ones don't, and it gives you the best one. Right. Plus, they know where to look for promo codes. And, and it, I mean, you could do this automatically, but why would you? It's like getting a million promo codes from just one little podcast ad. So, yeah, it's awesome and it will save you money. There's no better reason to get it. And you might have heard it on other people's channels. And I honestly didn't believe it was this useful until I tried it myself. And yeah, it's it's absolutely great. All right. So get all the promo codes Honey can find at joinhoney.com slash SPI. That's joinhoney.com slash SPI. Quick install, it'll find those coupon codes for you. Welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast, where it's all about working hard now so you can sit back and reap the benefits later. And here's your host. He's studying to learn how to grow coffee one day so he can start his farm. Pat Flynn. So this past week, we interviewed Joe Sanek from Practice of the Practice, who is the author of a new book called Thursday is the New Friday. You gotta love that, right? Can you imagine starting your week on Monday and going, you know what, I cannot wait till Thursday because we go and clubbing. Just kidding, I don't club anymore. But you know, like you have Thursday night, that's when the weekend starts, Friday, all Friday, Saturday and Sunday, and then you're back to work on Monday. And I had mentioned that, well, they're actually doing a four-day work week in Iceland. 85% of the workers there are doing a four-day work week, and productivity levels are up, stress levels are down, people are happier, and I think that's starting to create this thought that, you know what, who created the five-day week anyway, and why is it like that? And, And we've all been burnt out. We've all felt that, you know, maybe the weekend isn't quite long enough. What if we had an extra day? And we talk all about that in this episode and how to actually do this, how to implement it, what's important, all those kinds of things. And I just wanted to riff today because in our Friday follow-ups, I always take the topic from the previous episode and just kind of riff with you. We're going to riff for maybe 10, 15 minutes about the future and where we're going. We don't need roads. We just need a microphone. And that's what we got. So I just got back at the time of this recording from Maui. 
So my family and I, we went on a vacation during the summer before school started. The kids are now in sixth grade and third grade. Just to give you an update, I have a friend, DJ Scoob, who's literally going back to episode one. This is somebody who recently discovered me and is going back to episode one, and he's like, I'm gonna catch up. And so he's gonna flip out when he hears this. I don't know when he's gonna be able to hear this, but he's been giving me updates on where he's at. He just, the other day, he was like, oh, your son was just born. And I was like, wow, that's so crazy. And then he's like, oh, now your daughter was just born. And then I heard your son and daughter on your show because they were on the show, and I haven't had them on a show in a while. I should actually make that happen. Let me know in the chat or not in the chat, sorry, this isn't live. Let me know on Twitter or Instagram if you'd like to hear my family come back on the show at some time. It has definitely been a while. But all this to say, thinking about the future, we got back from Maui, it was a really good trip, and it was much, much needed, obviously, with COVID and whatnot. We hadn't been traveling for a while. We travel a lot. We focus a lot here in the Flynn family on experiences rather than things. And those memories that we create are, are worth so much to us. And it's just been, you know, a lot of the memories during COVID were an above ground pool that we had to blow up. And, and that was our pool time in the summer. And also, you know, gardening. And we, we made the best of it. You know, a lot of card games, board games, starting Pokemon, a lot, a lot of things. A lot of good things came out of that time at home together but you know they're back in school and it made me think you know we only have with our son seven summers left if you remember the episode we did about the family board meeting we talked about well how many summers are left with our kids and with me and my son we only have seven summers left and with my daughter we only have 10 summers left before they're out so it makes us a want to make sure that we spend as much time with them as possible to go on dates with them individually so they get some alone time with both sets of parents and, or, or with both mommy and daddy. And, you know, it just blows my mind thinking about, well, who, who are they going to be? What are, the, what are they going to do? And are they going to go to college? And what are their interests going to be? Who are they going to date? Like all this kind of stuff is, is so crazy to think about. But then after those summers are over, well, then what? You know, because a lot of the time spent now, especially uh, April, is thinking about the kids and preparing them for their future as much as possible. But, you know, we've had conversations about our future together and where we want to end up. And it's motivating, right, to think about, truly think about planning for your own future, your own next era in life. And no matter where you are, whether you have kids or not, there's always going to be a next era of life. If you're in college, obviously, it's postgraduate. If you are in work, it perhaps is when you get that big promotion and you can start to unlock new things in your lifestyle with that income or when you hit a certain number of savings or when you go on a certain life-changing trip. Things like that are amazing things that you could shoot for and create goals for. And we have a lot of goals with relation to our future as far as, you know, where we might live, what we might do. And, you know, I, I wanted to just riff on this. It's going to be a little weird, but I wanted to talk about my coffee farm. Coffee farm. Yeah, a coffee farm. So I've fallen in love with coffee. I'm quite addicted to it. I have a couple cups of Joe per day. That's for you, Joe Sanuk, our guest. A couple cups of Joe per day. And there's a couple places here in San Diego that uh, roast their own beans. Mostra being one of them. Mostra Coffee, highly recommend them. Filipino-owned family. I've invested in that company and they're doing really, really well. But they're also very friendly and they're very open with how things go. And, and I've gotten to know the team over there pretty well and learn just a little bit. I mean, just not even scratching the surface, but really, really getting curious about, well, how does this all work? And where does this, where does this, where do these beans get sourced from? And what's the journey? 
And it's interesting because this is something that I've talked about on the show for a while. It was one of my fun facts in the beginning of, the, of an episode a while back. And people commented on it. They're like, oh, yeah, hey, let me know when your coffee farm opens. I'll come by. And I'm like, well, it's going to be a while. Uh, it's going to have to be in Hawaii if there is a farm. I don't know if I'm going to live there or not, but that's where the farm would be because it's the only state in the U.S. where coffee can really be grown because of the climate. But more than that, we went on this chocolate factory tour. And this was my second chocolate factory tour. The chocolate factory tour I did first was actually in Berkeley. Scharfenberger was the name of that factory. And this one was called Kuia. And this is in Maui. We went to their chocolate factory. And it was actually a, not really a tour. It was more of a presentation, but we got to do a chocolate tasting and stuff, which was really great. And it was cool because we were there in a day where the founder of this chocolate actually gave the presentation. And his name was Gunars, G-U-N-A-R-S. And he was actually a former biotech entrepreneur from, guess where? San Diego, which is actually where I'm from. So there was a, already a connection there with that. And he said that he had sold his company, which I thought was really cool. He moved to Maui to retire. But then he got bored. And so he started to grow cacao beans or pods to supply them to the locals. And, you know, economically, it just didn't make sense to do that anymore. But in order to actually continue on doing that in this hobby that he started to really enjoy, he decided that, you know what, I'm going to turn these cacao beans into chocolate. And now he has some of the premier chocolate that can only be found in Maui, mauichocolate.com, hashtag not sponsored. But it was just so cool because I was like, wow, that's like me. Like I could see me going through that route of selling a business or going to retire and then realizing that, you know what, I want this bigger thing to give back. And that's the cool thing about the Kauia chocolate is that all profits are going to be going to charity. And you can look up different articles about them that have been written and, and whatnot. Again, G-U-N-A-R-S, last name Valkyrs, V-A-L-K-I-R-S. But it was just really interesting because this was another moment where, you know, it wasn't like, oh my gosh, I'm going to follow him, you know, exactly. And I'm going to try to get his number and try to get a mastermind with him or anything like that. It was just more like, wow, hey, there's somebody who has done something similar to what I had been planning to do or had thought about doing. So A, no longer can I say, oh, well, this is impossible because somebody has done it once before. But number two, there is somebody out there who if I ever wanted to get some feedback from or ask questions about entrepreneur to entrepreneur, if he was willing, I'm sure he'd be willing to share or even if I had to pay to get access to that. Because that has been the thing that has helped me more than anything with getting to where I want to go in life. It's got me to where I am now and it's going to get me to where I want to go later. And that is finding people who have done it before and asking them how it's been done. Or if I don't have access to them, talk to somebody who has had access to them. Or if I don't have access to that person, read some material like a book that perhaps they have written. Or if they haven't written a book, find them on a podcast episode. Whatever the case may be, I'm always looking for, not just, well, what's the next thing I should do, but who has done that already? And that has sped up my learning process. That has sped up my efficiencies. That has allowed me to get to results much, much faster. And I'm not saying that, okay, if somebody else teaches me how to do something, I'm automatically gonna be doing it right. No, but I'll cut out so much of the error and so much of the, not just the what I do error, but more the psychological error. Somebody telling me that I'm not alone when I'm approaching something new that I've never done before. 
that they were feeling the same things that I was feeling. That is so reassuring because sometimes I think I'm crazy and I know you think this sometimes too whenever you're trying something new. We almost are so selfish that we think that we're so unique that we have these problems and nobody else does. But when we zoom out, there are many other people who have gone through the same things that we have. Therefore, there are many other people who can help us, who can guide us, who can be examples or if anything, at least inspiration for that. And it's interesting because while in Maui, in one of the only places in the United States that I could grow coffee, here is a chocolate tasting tour where I go on where I see an example of somebody much older, but who has gone through something that I was curious about. I went up to him afterwards and thanked him for the presentation, told him a little bit about what I did and, you know, made a connection. And, you know, I haven't reached out to him or anything yet, but I'm sure that one day in the future, especially him being from San Diego and likely traveling here every once in a while, fairly active on social media kind of thing, I could probably at least get on a call with him. Maybe if I put a large order of chocolate in, he might entertain that, if anything. But all this just to say, you know, it's it's interesting how the world works like that sometimes, because that wasn't planned. I didn't know he had this story, but it very much aligned with where I wanted to go. And it makes me wonder, okay, well, what else might I want to do? Well, I'd like to own a boat one day. You know, I've never owned a boat. I've been on many, many boats. I've loved going fishing with my dad when I was little, and I'd love to get back into it with my own kids and even my dad again. But you know, owning my own boat, I wouldn't even know where to begin. I'm afraid of getting lost or driving it into something or someone hurting somebody. I don't want to do that. And on the way back from Maui, I sat next to somebody who started a conversation with me on the plane. And he was also from San Diego. We were obviously both airbound towards San Diego. So that made sense. He and his family had spent time in Hawaii. We got talking and I discovered that this person was a tuna fisherman. He actually owns a boat in San Diego. And I was like, wow, that's really interesting. I'd love to own a boat one day, but I'm, I'm really scared. And he said, yo, I felt the exact same way. Like I was gonna get lost or crash into people or something. And I said, that's exactly how I feel. And he said, hey, you know what? I've been doing this for years. Let's exchange numbers. And I'd love to take you out in the bay. And I'd love to take you out and we, we can go tuna fishing. And I could show you how it is in case you ever really wanted to own your own boat and captain your own boat one day, you could just get a firsthand feel of what it's like. And again, the universe just having a way of plopping that in front of me. And it's interesting because I had just prepared on the plane to spend five hours playing Minecraft. Yes, I play Minecraft. My kids and I play Minecraft together. And I was in the middle of building this world and something that I could spend some time doing on the plane. And anyway, I'm not even gonna explain. I had my headphones out, I had my computer out. And then me and this guy, his name is Sean, started talking. And then we just literally spoke the whole time together. And we're now friends. I haven't yet gone on a boat with him at the time that I'm recording this. But it is something that once things get a little safer, is likely going to happen. And it'll give me a firsthand experience from somebody who's done it before, who's had those same thoughts before about what is it actually like to own a boat? You know, I have a lot of questions and being on that boat with somebody who, guess what, owns a boat is gonna be the best education I could have. Where do you put your boat? How much does it cost to keep your boat there? Who manages the boat? Do you have to like radio signal people in that you're arriving like you do with an airplane? How does the anchor work? What happens if your power goes out in the middle of the ocean? How do you know which way to go when you can't see land anymore? Over 
a rod and a reel, I'm sure I can get every single question answered. Eventually get to the point where I could realize that, okay, that's definitely something I wanna do, or you know what, now that I know what I need to know, I don't really wanna do that anymore. And either way, I can move on. Now, if fate puts those people in front of you, awesome. But if not, you need to go find them. You need to put yourself out there, and yes, it's gonna get uncomfortable, it's gonna put you out of your comfort zone, but that's where all the most, most amazing things happen, right? And I'll tell you, I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for the people who were around me. But I put myself in those places to be around those people. They didn't show up at my door. They didn't randomly stop me while walking through the mall. I put myself at those conferences. I put myself in those masterminds. And these connections happen as a result. So I don't know how we ended up here, but we did because we were talking about the four-day work week. But that made me feel like, okay, well, four days a week, I could spend the other three days fishing on a boat with my kids, my family, building memories that will last forever. I hope this episode made an impact on you in some way, shape, or form. And it was a really cool way to update you on some things that are happening in my life too. So either way, I appreciate you. Thank you so much for listening in on our follow-up Friday episode. Make sure to go back and listen to episode 511 with Mr. Joe Sanek an amazing episode that you won't wanna miss, especially if you feel like you've been overworking and you're trying to restructure your life in a way that allows you to get more work done in less time and have a little bit more control. Go ahead and check it out next. Thanks so much, I appreciate you. Looking forward to serving you next week. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Smart Passive Income Podcast at smartpassiveincome.com. I'm your host, Pat Flynn. Our senior producer is Sarah Jane Hess. Our series producer is David Grabowski. And our executive producer is Matt Gartland. Sound editing by Duncan Brown. The Smart Passive Income Podcast is a production of SPI Media. We'll catch you in the next session. Also, today's show is sponsored by AppSumo, the leading digital marketplace for entrepreneurs like you and a great way to get your product in front of over 1 million entrepreneurs, founders, and small businesses. So here's what's going on. They're giving away their entire $1 million Black Friday marketing budget to creators like you. If you have an ebook, an online course, templates, or any other digital products, this is for you. You list your product on AppSumo between September 15th and November 17th, and the first 400 offers to go live will receive $1,000, the next 2,000 will get 250, and everyone who gets listed gets entered to be one of the 10 lucky winners to potentially receive $10,000. So go to AppSumo.com slash Pat Flynn to list your product today and cash in on this amazing deal. Again, AppSumo.com slash Pat Flynn. Link in the description as well. If you enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes, give us a rating, and leave a review. some expensive, politically correct, green act of bunny-hugging, or blah, blah, blah. Build back better, blah, blah, blah. Green economy, blah, blah, blah.
Young people are at the heart of the climate crisis. Feeling like I'm screaming at a wall and no one is really listening. They're the ones whose futures will be most affected by the consequences. I felt that people kept on dismissing my feelings as something that wasn't a priority. The youth climate movement is one of the most powerful movements in the world. But is the world doing enough to protect its young people from climate change and the side effects of it? You're listening to Sky News Climate Cast with me, Anna Jones. And me, Katerina Vitozzi. And this week, we're getting down with the kids and visiting the Youth Cop in Milan. Yes, and we'll be seeing the impact young people can have on the fight against climate change, but also the impact that climate change can have on them and their well-being. So, Youth COP26 kicked off in Italy this week. Uh, it's a pre-COP summit which involves young people in the negotiations and hundreds of youth climate activists from more than 150 countries have come to Milan to put forward their ideas and proposals for how we should tackle the climate emergency. Well, our climate correspondent, Hannah Thomas-Peter, has been at that conference. You can probably hear the buzz of a big open conference centre, sort of aircraft hangar size, full of hundreds of young people, delegates from around the world who've gathered here in Milan to work through some of the most pressing issues when it comes to tackling climate change. They've all split up into different working groups today and they're in sat in big circular uh, arena type offices that you can see into um, and when they've got something important to say, they all gather together in the centre in this big sort of plenary meeting area and talk about what they've decided on. And it's, it's full of life and joy and ambition and earnestness. And the coffee is very good, which always helps. Well, it is Italy. Yeah. Exactly. And um, it, it's, it's a very interesting and um, dynamic place to be in the run-up to the full COP meeting in Glasgow later this year. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and is there a particular aim, Hannah? I mean, do they go into it with a particular objective or trying to reach a you know certain agreement? There is an overlap between youth COP, which is happening now, and pre-COP, where all the COP26 ministers are also going to arrive in Milan. And the idea is that the young activists have face time with these ministers and talk to them about what the priorities are of young people. Because as we know, tackling the climate crisis has, has very much been driven by youth activism. You know, the Fridays for Future strikes started by Greta Thunberg led to millions of young people taking to the streets all over the world. And Vanessa Nakate, a Ugandan activist who's very well known, really pressed today when they gave their keynote addresses. Yeah, and tell us about, I know you, you spoke with both of them um, over the last few days. What was that experience like? Was that the first time that you sort of had spoken to them in a you know a one-to-one sort of setting before? I interviewed Greta Thunberg a couple of years ago. I went to Stockholm to speak to her. And she was very different then. And she often says, you know, she is on the autism spectrum. So she needs to be quite careful about what she's exposed to in terms of stimulus, because she arrived and was treated like an absolute rock star. And she was just completely surrounded and looked very uncomfortable with it. And then when she came into the this aircraft hangar space, she was mobbed again by delegates in particular who wanted selfies with her. Like she's the face yeah. of 
youth activism and climate change. And she just clearly wasn't happy and needed some time out. And so the interview was hanging in the balance for quite a long time. But they decided at the end of the day that they were actually going to give Sky News some time. And so I met Vanessa and Greta and we walked to the interview space and sat down and had a, had a chat. The UK is very good at creative carbon accounting, um, excluding emissions and etc, etc. So it's very easy for them to, to make it seem like they are taking leadership. And it's, I find it very strange that they're like, they are the ones who we are supposed to look up to now. But they are ob- objectively one of the biggest climate villains. Do you think of the United Kingdom as a climate villain? I think they are, because true climate leadership doesn't mean opening new coal power plants or funding new oil fields. True climate leadership is uh, prioritising the people and the planet over profits. And obviously frustration being expressed there, but we're looking specifically at climate anxiety as well amongst young people. And I think that is something that you actually talked to uh, Greta Thunberg and Vanessa Nakati about, didn't you? Did they ever experience that themselves, do you think? Yes, Greta Thunberg's been really um, open about that. In she's said that she really struggled when she was a younger teenager with climate anxiety, and it sort of sent her into a sort of paralysis. But that she's found that uh, becoming part of a movement been very therapeutic for her. And Vanessa Nakati said the same thing that she couldn't just. The anxiety was worse if if she just sat and watched developments from her hometown of, of Kampala in Uganda. Well. For me, I think um, one of the time the times I really experienced that uh, was when I, in the beginning of my activism, and you know the feeling of the leaders are not doing anything, and yet these disasters continue to happen. So it kind of affected me in a way that I couldn't strike for a couple of weeks, I think, because. I was feeling frustrated about the inaction of leaders and feeling like I'm screaming at a wall and no one is really listening. I think also, as you say, in the beginning of being an activist, it was more more of a kind of being worried about the future. But I think that if you, if you do take action, um, that feeling uh, is being reduced because you get a sense of meaning and like a momentum that you're doing something good and that's that's the best medication against that kind of anxiety or worries. But it's not just high-profile activists like Greta Thunberg or Vanessa Nakate who've suffered with eco-anxiety as the climate crisis has intensified. A recent global survey revealed the true scale of how many children and young people across the world were anxious and seriously worried about the consequences of climate change. We were lucky to be supported by Avaz, who paid for the poll to be conducted across 10,000 children, 1,000 children in each of different countries around the world. And we knew that young people and children were frightened and they had powerful feelings of sadness and anxiety and despair about climate change. But what we didn't realise was quite how scared they were. Caroline Hickman from the University of Bath is the lead author of the research. With two thirds telling us that they were afraid, anxious and over a half saying they felt angry, powerless, helpless, 
guilty and ashamed. So we've got the feelings, but then we asked about their thinking. And eight out of 10 young people in this poll said, people have failed to take care of the planet. Eight out of 10 is an enormous number. Over half said they felt humanity was doomed. And four out of 10 young people told us they were hesitant to have children because of climate change. My goodness. Wow. From this data, we found 48% of children and young people told us they felt ignored or dismissed when they tried to talk about climate change. Now, those numbers are not just a few children and young people, so they can't be dismissed. When we look at a statistic like over half of these young people felt that humanity was doomed, what we're leaving these children and young people with is these terrible thoughts, awful feelings, and then relationally we're dismissing them and we're invalidating their feelings and we're telling them that they shouldn't be worrying so much. The survey found that young people felt failed by adults, failed to protect the planet for their future, failed by world leaders and failed to be listened to. So I'm working in my psychotherapy practice, for example, with some of the most severe experience of this, where Children and young people are feeling suicidal. They're feeling they don't want to live in a world that doesn't care about children, young people and animals. Well, the shocking results of this study have been picked up globally by The Late Show in the US and by Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General. So could a realisation of how young people are feeling help us fix the problem? I do have hope. And I do have optimism. And our research found that there was hope that young people could be reassured, they could feel protected, they could feel valued, and they themselves could feel hopeful if we took their concerns seriously. I've been receiving emails from young people all over the world over the last two weeks saying, thank you, your research makes me feel normal. It makes me feel validated. It's too late to change the start of this story. It's too late to stop climate change from happening, but it's absolutely not too late to change the end of this story. And if humanity can pull together and get beyond the political, now that would give us hope. Caroline left us with the wise words of nine-year-old Sophia, who she spoke to during her research. I talked to a lot of children and said, how do we have these conversations without traumatising you and terrifying you? She said, well, she said, you've got to tell us the truth. She said, because if you don't tell us the truth, you're lying to us. She said, and if you lie to us, we can't trust you. And if we can't trust you, we can't tell you how we feel. And if we can't tell you how we feel, we're on our our own with these feelings. And we feel lonely. She said, but tell me the good news and then tell me some bad news. Tell me some good news and then tell me some bad news. And she finished it beautifully. She said, anyway, I'm not a baby. So we have to really listen to Sophia. I think she's absolutely... I wish she was running the world, really. I think she's absolutely framed beautifully. Not just the way to talk to children and young people about this, but how to talk to ourselves about this. So coming up, can we and how do we channel climate anxiety into positive action? Hello, my name is Samia Dumboya and I identify as a climate justice activist. Samia Dumboya has suffered with climate anxiety since she was a teenager. And yeah, the first time I experienced it was definitely when I was a teen where I cared about so many environmental issues and I remember feeling overwhelmed, like, who is talking about this? Who's doing something about it? 
growing up in East London in particular, I just looked around and said, we have so many issues regarding air pollution, litter pollution. And I just felt like nothing was being done. And I do remember feeling alone in that moment because I felt that no one cared about this. And if I did raise it up, people will say like, oh, we've got bigger issues going on that we need to care about. And I felt that people kept on dismissing my feelings as something that wasn't a priority. And do you think it was the issues themselves or the sense of things not being done that was causing you the most anxiety or was was it a bit of both? So I would say it was the fact that nothing was being done that caused the anxiety because at the end of the day, the climate crisis is definitely something that's already happening and we have the power to mitigate the impacts of it but no one's using that power or their resources. So it was just like frustrating every time I switch on the news or read an article or scroll through my Twitter and Instagram and just seeing all these leaders like not doing, making the right decisions, but also lacking the political will to do something. Yeah, it's not a good feeling to have, especially when you're an individual who doesn't have access to those decision-making spaces, a person who doesn't have power, And you just kind of feel hopeless. And yeah, it's quite a bad feeling to have, especially as a young person. Well, yes. And do you think the fact that you were young made the situation worse? You talked about that feeling of powerlessness. Do you think that you felt that you had less of a voice because of your age? Yeah, definitely. Because I remember when I was younger, (laughs) I would raise up what I was concerned about. And I remember adults just saying, oh no, like, you're very naive, you're very, like, radical, this is just how the world works, you just have to accept it for the way it is, and they just said it's more complicated behind the scenes, and obviously as a young person who doesn't have experience being in the government, or being in spaces where, you know, the real decisions are made. Yeah, as I grew older and started doing research, I studied geography and environmental science. I was like, wait, we definitely do have the solutions. It's just that (laughs) no one's picking them up or financing them. Was there a sense of something struck a chord in you when you started talking to other young people in these groups and people shared the sort of feelings that you had, you know, that, that anxiety, that frustration and that anger yeah I think that's a good question because recently I found my community through the climate resilience project which was started by Katie Hodgetts and the whole idea is finding community but also creating space to be safe and heard Um, I've met lots of young activists youngest 16 17 and 18 who basically said that they are so happy that They're not the only ones who share these feelings and these thoughts. They shared how they sometimes feel depressed, they feel grief, they feel anxiety because of the climate crisis, because they're afraid of the future that they have inherited. They have said they've never had this space before in their lives. They're usually confided in Twitter timelines, Instagram, social media, but that's not enough. Like... Those platforms are very static. No one's talking to you. It's not a proper conversation. And it's nice to just have that in-person, like, energy. Yeah, I imagine after sort of months, if not years, of feeling like that, when people finally have that space, it's a bit like a 
top coming off a corked bottle, isn't it? And it all just sort of comes out. And I imagine there's a great feeling of relief with that. I mean, what would be your advice to young people who listening to what you you describe as your experience think do you know what that's exactly how I feel and I don't know where to go you are not alone there's so many of us that have these feelings and what I would suggest is basically going through your community groups on Facebook go on Google find what's in your area in terms of who's interested in these issues because trust me those people care as much as you do people feel eco-anxiety because they care So going to those communities of care is the first step, I would say. And another thing to do is, I know people kind of hate when people say this, but journaling your thoughts, don't keep it inside. Actually write out, sometimes I do video journals because I have a short attention span, so I need to talk. (laughs) And Something I can resonate with, yep. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And just making sure that you don't keep your feelings trapped inside because I think that exacerbates the issue and you end up falling into a pit of hopelessness and depression. And don't feel like you need to hide those feelings as well. I know it's not positive. Like, we don't like addressing negative feelings because it makes people uncomfortable, it makes ourselves uncomfortable. But you actually need to reconcile with those feelings because that's a part of you and you shouldn't hide it. So, Katerina, news-wise, it's been another really busy week, hasn't it? We've not only had Youth Cop, where we've heard from the likes of Greta Thunberg and Vanessa Nakati, as well as officials like Alok Sharma and Patricia Espinosa, but there's been plenty else going on as well. Yes, and shall we uh, start with a look at what's been happening in the UK and the world of politics this week? Uh, the Labour Party conference has been going on, and we know that Labour has promised to invest tens of billions of pounds more every year to help protect the UK from climate change uh, and turn the country's economy green. Now, this pledge uh, came from Rachel Reeves, who's the shadow chancellor, and I think, as you can probably expect, was immediately welcomed by environmental groups uh, because it would quadruple the amount currently being spent by uh, the Conservative government. And it, it does really, I think, act as a bit of a challenge. You know, it's a throwing down of the gauntlet to the Conservatives ahead of their party conference and, of course, uh, COP26. Meanwhile, not much longer to go until COP26, the big UN climate summit. Obviously, a lot of concern about whether or not all the world leaders are going to show up and um, some hints that Australia's Prime Minister may not be going. Yes. So uh, this is all while Scott Morrison's government is facing criticism from environmentalists for its climate record or or lack thereof you know it's something we've talked about on this podcast uh, just in the last couple of weeks haven't we um and this further signal that scott morrison um maybe not putting green or climate events right at the top of his agenda because in an interview he has said that he has not made any final decisions on attending as he has and this is a quotation directly already spent a lot of time in quarantine and I think when you contrast this to the sort of statements we were hearing at the UN General Assembly last week where every leader wanted to get up on that podium and talk about the environment and the climate you know this is such a stark contrast to that isn't it we know that Australia is not yet committed to reaching net zero by 2050 it hasn't set out 
its targets and how it intends to get there. And that is despite the country being the highest per capita carbon emitter amongst the world's richest nations. Uh, China's president, we should also point out, has also not yet confirmed whether he will be attending. Meanwhile, I've got a, a little note here about our next story, and it says <laughs> high eels. And, I, and it's not high heels, and I'm saying it wrong. No. <laughs> it's high eels. So do explain, Katerina. Yes, well, I'm going to start this by saying if I was a researcher of any note, this is exactly the sort of thing I'd be wanting to delve into. So, um, Eels and Glastonbury Festival, how have we got here? Well, uh, researchers from the Centre for the Environmental Biotechnology have been looking at the levels of cocaine and MDMA um, in water bodies around Glastonbury Festival, and they've detected them in a major river that runs through the site. And these are levels of cocaine and MDMA, uh, which are high enough to even harm wildlife. And the researchers have discovered that populations of the European eel, which is critically endangered, uh, are being affected. So where do we go from here? Well, revellers have been politely asked to use toilets provided by the organisers in future, um, as they believe the drugs may have entered the river as a result of people peeing in public. And so that's a very good point to end this week's episode of Sky News Climate Cast with me, Anna Jones. And me, Katerina Patozzi. And this week's episode was produced by Emma Ray Woodhouse. Do remember you can catch up with all the other climate news with us on the Daily Climate Show. That's every weekday at 6.30pm on Sky News. And remember to like, rate and subscribe to this podcast. And we'll see you next time. episode please leave us a review on itunes digit number doesn't tell your story that's why every progressive leasing approval is no credit needed shop your favorite stores with progressive leasing to get what you need such as furniture laptops headphones jewelry mobile phones appliances mattresses and more progressive leasing obtains information from credit bureaus not all applicants are approved progressive leasing offers lease to own purchase options acquiring ownership by leasing costs more than the retailer's cash price visit progleasing.com to get started today Hello and welcome to the Maggie Institute Podcast. I'm Timothy Shea. I'm Brooke McGowan. And folks, you're going to hear a little echo here because usually we use technology to talk between North Carolina and New York State. But right now, Brooke is two and a half feet behind me. So I think Brooke, one of us at a time, is going to have to talk. Uh, crazy day. We're on our way to Tulsa to a business conference, and we just got word that we've got 13 turncoat senators that just voted to keep the government running until December 3rd. No surprises except for Senator John Kennedy of Louisiana. 
Yeah, Kennedy was a big disappointment for sure. But of course, we expected Burr and Tillis to do what they do. Tom Tillis and Burr and John Cornyn, of course. You know, Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell, they're all going to keep doing what they've always done. And here we are. We've got to watch our debt ceiling continue to increase. We're going to see it actually default, regardless of what's happening right now. I mean, this, this budget is out of this world, and we will have a default. Well, and that's their plan. They want to undermine the full faith and credit of the United States on the global stage. They certainly want the American dollar to stop being the currency used for oil trading because that's the number one use of a currency in the world is for the petrodollars. None of this is a surprise. All of it's by design. We know what they're up to, and they are literally just running up the score as quickly as possible because they know that a tsunami is coming in 2022 if we can lock these elections down. And that is the hope. We see Arizona AG is doing what he promised he would do. Now, many people are complaining about him saying he's just running for Senate, so he's he's postulating. But guess what? I don't care. <laughs> At this point, do what you got to do to make that happen. And if, if you have to make the people happy because you've got to arre- make these arrests, making the arrest is the right thing to do regardless. It absolutely is. We'll take a little posturing any day. And I think he really... He's not doing it because he's running for governor. I think what he saw was he's got a craven, corrupt governor of the same party. Doug Ducey is a Republican in name. And Brnovich said, hey, this state needs some leadership. I'm going to prosecute the criminals, and then I'm going to run for governor and lead us back to respectability. Is it governor he's running for? I saw Senate. I'm sorry, it's, it's Senate, yes. Yeah, yeah, he's running for Senate. So he's, he's Although, running you know, if the, audit, if the audit results come out, maybe there's not a Senate seat for him to run for, right? <laughs> right, right. Wow. Well, we hope that all works out. We're looking to Georgia and Pennsylvania and Michigan, Wisconsin, all the other states that we've been hoping for since last November, Timbo. And so we're going to keep this watch. Maybe Arizona's the first domino to fall, as they've been saying. We would love it, but one thing you and I are not going to do is trust the plan. We're going to be betting candidates nationwide. We really have to push. And, folks, we said it the other day, we want you to contact the Arizona State Senate and push for them to release all of the audit materials, all of the results, because, as I said yesterday, it doesn't matter if you're throwing darts accurately if you're – at the very edge of the board and not even close to the bullseye. So accuracy and reliability are two different things. we got to get this straightened out before 2022 or else our country is indeed lost. I happen to think it is not. I think we can get a hold of this because there's just too much for them to cover up anymore, Brooke. I think you're right, and the Patriots are going to push for that tempo across the whole country. You see that in 50 states, people are demanding an audit because this last election, people felt like their their votes weren't counted. As we've said long ago, we've said we've got to get this right because we have worries that people are going to just give up. They're going to throw their throw the towel in and say, what's the point of voting? Well, the point of voting, as you can see, is what exactly we've done right now. We've got to push back. 
We know that they've cheated. We've got to keep pushing back. They cheated in 16, Timbo. They cheated in 18. They just cheated better in 20. So we have. Oh, to they cheated in 10. They cheated in 8, 10, and 12. I mean, come yeah. on. Yeah. Mitt right. Romney just literally laid down in that second debate. Totally. Totally. So well, we've got another great fighter. We keep fighting the good fight here, and we've got another great fighter for America's health. Why don't you tell folks, remind them who our guest is today while I go get him? Sure. Guys, one of our favorite people in this fight right now with COVID-19 and the vaccinations is Dr. Brian Artis. And we've considered him now as a close friend. We're about to see him this weekend. So excited. But today we're going to in, uh, invite him back to an interview to really give us an update about what's been going on. You remember Brian Artis is the doctor who has been on the circuit for a year and a half nearly. It was May of 2020 that he realized that, uh, that remdesivir was such a danger. And so the protocol that CDC and FDA have put out for your relatives and for yourself has been so dangerous. So Artis has been banging that gong for a long time. We've been excited to talk to him. Every time we do, we get new information. And I want to invite, or excuse me, welcome back to the show, a regular, our favorite, Dr. Brian Artis. Howdy, everybody. How are you? So excited to be back on the MAGA Institute show. You guys are amazing. Well, we love having you on, Brian. You're one of the most commented guests that we've had. Every time we have a podcast with you, we get a couple dozen comments at least. You're really bringing great information. People have questions. You know, we try to answer the questions with them. But we've got some questions for you today with regard to the latest developments in COVID-19. I have a friend, she and her husband got COVID, and it actually was COVID. It wasn't a false positive. They're not GMO, so it's not a vaccine injury that they had. But the ivermectin and the zinc didn't work for them. And Brooke, I think you've heard from a couple people as well, so I'd like to know what's going on with that. Yeah. So I do have a couple of friends, Brian, that have gone through, you know, COVID. They, they called it COVID pneumonia that they suffered. They are not vaccinated friends. They were sick with COVID. They ended up with COVID pneumonia. They treated it with ivermectin and zinc. And this is two different people who don't know each other have commented back to me that it just didn't work. Ivermectin didn't work for me. Um, and so I was wondering, you know, we didn't want that to be a thing. We don't want that to really be a meme out there. We want people to keep trying these protocols that have been proven to help. So I wanted to know, had you heard that at all yourself? Because now I've had two people and Timbo's had one, or at least a couple, his people are married to each other, so it didn't help them, and it didn't help a couple of my friends. What have you heard about this, and what do you know about it? Great questions, and I'm sorry that those people dealt with uh, struggling using ivermectin and zinc to see the benefit, but even as early as like four months ago, uh, the group with Pierre Corey at net. that group, uh, they've got protocols out for at-home treatment for COVID-19 using ivermectin and in-hospital recovery, long-haul issues with COVID that all include ivermectin. And about four months ago, they started saying that in hospitals that they're treating patients with, with this new Delta variant, that they were not responding to that dose, which is 24 milligrams of ivermectin every day for five days. They were finding it was very difficult for them to treat this new variant. And so they upped the dose of ivermectin and saw dramatic results. So they actually were going 
the dose is actually this for the Delta variant. And when I was with Richard Bartlett this weekend, who's an ER doctor in Odessa, Texas, Richard Bartlett said, I interviewed him for a 30-minute period, and uh, he'd made me aware of something. I said, oh, we got to sit down and record this. He said, uh, this Delta variant virus that we're seeing now, he goes, it's not even the same virus as the SARS-CoV-2. This isn't a variant. This is an, a completely different virus. And the way medical doctors who are treating patients know that it's a different virus, it doesn't have any of the same similar-like symptoms or disease processes as they saw with SARS-CoV-2. So he's convinced it's a totally different virus. FLCCC.net, they actually found that they were having a hard time with the 24-milligram dosage for five days of ivermectin with zinc being beneficial. But when they turned up the dose of ivermectin, the actual dose per person to beat this Delta variant, it's an actual specific dose. And when I give this to you, it's pretty amazing. The dose now is 0.6 milligrams for every 2.2 pounds of your body weight. So if you do the math, you take your weight, you divide it by 2.2, that gives you how many kilograms you are, and then you multiply that times 0.6 milligrams. And for some, that's as high as 30 milligrams. Some people, it's 53 milligrams. It just depends on your weight dose. And that's the miracle number they found to handle the Delta variant along with zinc. So uh, there has been issues of them trying to beat it with just the lower doses of ivermectin, but... Uh, there's been a lot of suspicion that this is not even the same virus that's been released on the world a second time. So they do believe there were variants originally, but that those all died off from the original SARS-CoV-2 back in February of this year. As we discussed before, variants are always less virulent. They're less exactly deadly right. Exactly right. the virus evolves. So it's not surprising that this is a second virus. The husband of my friend who ended up in the hospital, he actually was on 36 milligrams a day, which was the proper dosage for the new virus, yeah. but it still didn't work. But that would explain it. It's a different virus with different disease processes. Yeah. And I will tell you that uh, what Richard Bartlett talked about, he goes, it, it doesn't matter. The Delta variant responds exactly the same as the SARS-CoV-2 virus. If patients aren't using and are having issues with breathing with either one of these viruses, budesonide, it's by far the best thing to help clear up the pneumonia process as far as the medication. Well, that's uh, actually what got her, my friend out of the hospital. Is they did give her Simbicort, the budesonide, yep, and that got good. her home. And, and, you know, she's just on supplemental O2 now until she gets back on her feet. Yep, that's very good. So budesonide still needs to be used. I still have right now. I was just talking to my wife. There's several people messaging through Facebook that loved ones in ICUs are being told by doctors that they will not use budesonide, they will not use ivermectin, but these patients are struggling with their renal failure and threatened to be vented with their acute kidney failure and pulmonary edema, water in their lungs as a result. So they're still refusing to do this stuff in a lot of hospitals around the nation. Uh, it's disgusting, but we keep patient advocating for them. and. Uh, Anyway, budesonide by far handles the pneumonia symptoms of any virus respiratory-wise. Nebulizing it is by far better. Uh, Simbicort is, a, is an asthma inhaler type drug. I'm not sure if it comes in a respule, which is a liquid dose like budesonide does, but it might. And if they use that and put that into a nebulizer, that, that very well could have been very beneficial. But now while we're on the topic of Simbicort, I have to say something before somebody goes, oh, I should get Simbicort. Uh, just, it just so happened you just happened to mention that drug. I just need everybody to know on the planet, 
when Obama won his election, there was run a Time magazine article where they first advertised ever Simbacort as a new drug on the market. Simbacort is actually two asthma drugs. One is called a LABA, L-A-B-A. It's abbreviated beta antagonist. I just need everyone in the world to know. If you have a loved one who has asthma and they are giving that patient or that kid Simbacort as an inhaler, you need to all return them and never use them again. It actually has a black box warning that LABAs, the drug, the second drug in Simbacort, is known to increase the risk of death from asthma. And that one drug was banned 20 years ago from this United States of America, and they allowed Simbacort, this company, to actually put it back again into a drug as a combo with two asthma drugs, LABAs being one of them. So I do not think Simbacort is a good option. If anything, Pulmacort, which is budesonide, that is a brand name version. Uh, budesonide is an inhaler, and Pulmacort is a name brand by far. That is a safer brand, and you should use it. Simbacort, uh, I have never trusted from the time they patented that thing <laughs> and started selling it around the country about uh, 10, 15 years ago, I guess. I have a question. So do you, yes. back to what you said you were talking about with Dr. Bartlett, I had heard this before. I think that there's been some speculation that there's been a new release of SARS-CoV-3. Is this something that we are going to need to be prepared for every single year? There's going to be a new, not even a variant, but a new virus that the world, the, the Wuhan or whomever it is, is trying to unleash on Americans and on the world. Is this something we got to be prepared for? Yeah, well, we know from Dr. David Martin, he found out that our United States federal agency has 13 different patents that it owns on coronaviruses it created starting in 1999 through 2003. Uh, and each of them are, have, two of them have already been released, SARS-CoV-2, 2020, 2019. And then uh, the Delta variant was one of those also. So, yes, we do believe, and there's a lot that are concerned, that they're just going to continue to unleash one after another. Uh, but that I can't confirm. But I just I know that a lot of people are worried about that. It appears they it's created a, a delta variant even more even more transmissible and possibly more deadly than uh, the SARS-CoV-2 original. Um, but I actually got the delta variant when I came back from Bard's Fest in Missouri. Uh, but I beat it in three days. I didn't use ivermectin. I didn't use hydroxychloroquine. I actually just took high doses. I doubled my vitamin C dose, my magnesium dose, selenium dose and my uh, apple pectin, that's all I did. And then I added zinc, which I take every day anyway. So I took 100 milligrams of zinc along with those things, and within three days I was over. So the, it's not that your body can't handle it. There are just options that are much safer than going into an ICU, for sure. We've had a couple questions about the apple pectin that you mentioned last time. If you could briefly recap why apple pectin is so great and how it's helpful for people. Sure. So apple pectin binds to toxic chemicals and heavy metals that get into our body. And the reason why I created that disease prevention cocktail, it's a natural chelator, so it removes toxins from the body. And as your body destroys and tears down viruses, these are things that have to be removed from the body. The actual disease prevention cocktail that includes apple pectin was really designed to target the two chemicals we know are inside the COVID-19 vaccines. Apple pectin is known as a chelator, which means it binds to chemicals. It's been proven to bind to and remove things that are so dangerous to human tissue, such as ionized radiation, that it was the only thing at Chernobyl's nuclear power plant explosion in Russia 
that scientists use to prevent cancers in all their patients that are around Chernobyl who were exposed to the radiation, which was called cesium-137. Well, fast forward to several decades later, there's a huge uh, leak, nuclear power plant leak in Fukushima in Japan in 2011. That leak is still going on today. It's still going on today, and they find that within two years there's been teenagers, children as young as two, three, four, and five that actually have thyroid cancers, all because of the exposure to the radiation. And what the actual scientists looked at was they were trying everything medically to try to save these people's lives and prevent cancer, but nothing was working. So they looked at what scientists used in Russia with Chernobyl, and they started using the same thing, apopectin. And what they found since 2011 through now, if you just use apopectin powder at 700 milligrams twice a day for people exposed to ionized radiation that kills you and causes cancer, they could draw out of every human body, regardless of age, 64% of all of that toxic chemical in four weeks or less. So if they did it for two months, they could draw out 100% of all of the ionized radiation. And I decided, as a result of knowing that there's toxic chemicals and then there's hints to in the shots, there could be this stuff called graphene oxide. None of these chemicals inside the shots that we know are on the ingredient labels, nor graphene oxide, none of those are ionized radiation. None of them are as toxic as ionized radiation. This is why I made sure everybody took apple pectin at 700 milligrams to help detox those who are vaccinated and are shedding on the unvaccinated, and I've promoted it nonstop. You need to use this to try to detox as much as you can, those who have been shed on by the ones vaccinated and those who have received the shots for sure. Because it's a natural fruit fiber, is there any danger of if you don't have exactly 700 milligrams, if you go over a little bit, you're mixing it in water, no, you should your be body fine. will just eliminate it, right? Yeah, your body. I'm just trying not... to address concerns that people have expressed. No, I really love that because, uh, you know, back in the day we used to hear an apple a day keeps the doctor away. Uh, I think people would call in now to radio shows and go like this, well, well if one's good, it's too good. And what happens if I eat two? Well, yeah. you're going you're gonna to poop out the other one. If you take right. too much apple pectin, you're going to poop it out. No worries. But, but basically actual, it's just a physiological sponge then. It goes in it and whatever is bad that needs to come out, it's going to bind to it and yep. help the body eliminate it. It's very similar to what people experience with food poisoning. And you have heard people with food poisoning, they'll say, go to CVS, Walgreens, go to any pharmacy and get some activated, activated charcoal. And you take these supplements you swallow a little bit of charcoal in a capsule, and it actually absorbs the poisons or rotted material inside of the food, then you pass it out. Uh, this, is, this principle is not much difference. It's just a very powerful binder that helps your body to digest and remove through your bowels, through your urinary tract, toxic chemicals that get into our bodies. And the 700 milligrams was specific because that's exactly what they found in research at Chernobyl was enough and at, in Fukushima in Japan. So if it was good enough for that, uh, whatever this possible bioweapon of a vaccine might be, uh, I have to trust that it's going to be able to do that. I have not seen any research studies yet that actually have stated we're finding nuclear radiation or ionized radiation in these shots or vials. So if it's anything not ionized, if it can pull out ionized radiation, I'm going to trust this apple pectin fiber powder can pull out any other chemical man decides to put in there. Brian, it's really unconscionable what's happening currently, and that is we've seen that the Pfizer shot has now been, you know, approved for 5 to 11-year-olds. Do you – at one time you told us to be watching for MIS-C. Do you see 
that that's going to be a huge influx, like maybe a, just a, a rampant epidemic for children now that they're going to be getting the vaccine? Uh, that is a great question. Now, Brooke, I have to ask you something. Yes. I have not seen it only because I'm doing like six or seven media interviews every day and doing just my own little research here. But did Pfizer get the approval to do five and 11-year-old kids? Did they get it? Actually, nothing is approved yet. What is, this is the flim-flam they're doing, okay? Okay. They're saying that it was approved, but they're lying. The only thing that's been approved so far is a BLA, a biological license application. So they approved the application for a drug that's available only in Europe. So there's literally nothing on the market here in the U.S. that is approved, but they are pushing for it. And the way that they release the information that they approved the BLA for the European drug Comirnaty was that they did two letters on the same day and they worded them both so confusingly that you'd have to read them both together to realize that there's nothing in the U.S. All they did in the U.S. was extend the EUA for the Pfizer right. drug. Yeah, I, yeah, and, and, but they are pushing. They're pushing. Brooks exactly right. They're pushing to get it to five to 11-year-olds. So so I have heard that Pfizer has the EUA for 12-year-olds and older. We do know that. What I was yes. curious about was Pfizer last month said, in August, they said that we're asking for, they're asking for the FDA to give approval to now use their Pfizer BioNTech vaccine, which is still under EUA, to be approved to give to 5 to 11-year-olds. And I just haven't heard that yet. But they asked last month, they published it, that they have asked the FDA for approval in either September or October. So when you just said that, I was like, oh, did they do it? Because I haven't seen it. Yeah, no, they're, pu- they're pushing hard for it, though. Okay. I just wanted to clarify okay, that. Okay, my, because my I just bad. You know, <laughs> if, if, they, if they do get the approval to use, uh, it doesn't even matter. If they even say the Comirnaty vaccine, which doesn't even exist in America that they give approval for, it's actually an application approval is what they gave. But when you read the fact sheet for the Pfizer shots, it actually says on the first page, bottom of the footnote, it says Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine is still under emergency use authorization only. The Pfizer-BioNTech and the Pfizer-Comirnaty vaccine are legally distinct products, but they can be used interchangeably. So this gives authorization to Pfizer if you go into a, if you go into a clinic right now and they go, you need to get the shot. And you go, well, it's not approved. I don't want it. They'll go like this. Well, Pfizer is approved. And if the consumer doesn't know that the Pfizer-BioNTech is not approved, the doctors are actually allowed to say, uh, actually, we can use both interchangeably because FDA said we could on the fact sheets. So this was a very criminal way, legal jargon way of getting people to believe there's an approved shot when, in fact, the one they've been using this whole time in America has never been FDA approved, and it still isn't. The thing they approved was an application, like you mentioned, Tim, but uh, I think it's very criminal that the FDA would even announce or allow the press to say we approved a, a Pfizer vaccine. No, you didn't. It's not even here. And so you're, you're actually stating on the fact sheets, FDA, that you're stating that these are legally distinct things, but you can go ahead and use them interchangeably, even though we're not giving the Pfizer-BioNTech approval yet. Well, I find that very troubling. I find that very criminal, and uh, and I do not like it. And, yes, I'm very concerned that when they start pumping these shots, Moderna just asked for approval for a flu mRNA shot and the COVID-19 mRNA shot in a combo for children to release this winter. So, yes, I'm very concerned because 
the CDC started warning last year that each August through November, there's going to be these outbreaks of polio-like illness in children average age five years old. Polio-like illness means these children are going to have paralyzed legs, arms, and half of their faces looks like Bell's palsy or a stroke. And this is a side effect, actually, of every COVID-19 shot. It's a side effect of every flu shot that's ever been used on children. And it is also a known side effect of all the polio shots that are given to children. In fact, the CDC knows that this paralyzed polio-like illness in children They've known what's caused it. The CDC has known since 2001, and it's on their site. They know from vaccines they gave to Filipino children in 2001, it caused an outbreak of paralyzed children that they called acute flaccid myelitis. Acute means sudden onset. Flaccid means you can't use your arms or legs, can't walk, can't use your arm, can't move. And then, and then paralysis is what they called it. It was paralyzing of limbs of their legs. And the title of the article on the CDC's website today is. We know a three-digit number doesn't tell your story. That's why every Progressive Leasing approval is no credit needed. Shop your favorite stores with Progressive Leasing to get what you need, such as furniture, laptops, headphones, jewelry, mobile phones, appliances, mattresses, and more. Progressive Leasing obtains information from credit bureaus. Not all applicants are approved. Progressive Leasing offers lease-to-own purchase options, acquiring ownership by leasing costs more than the retailer's cash price. Visit progleasing.com to get started today. Acute flaccid myelitis caused by polio derived from childhood vaccines. It's absolutely criminal. Brooke Dub Fauci, the greatest mass murderer since Hitler earlier in the summer, she's absolutely correct. Criminal sanctions need to be brought against these doctors that are murdered. You know, he murdered people with his remdesivir protocol beginning in May 2020. He's murdering kids with these vaccine protocols. We've got 16-year-old boys whose hearts are stopping on athletic fields. We've got 13-year-old girls going into unbelievable tremors. It's disastrous what's going on, and the media is covering it up. What happened to the integrity of the medical profession? We stopped the swine flu vaccine in 1976 after 53 deaths. We've had over 53,000 deaths, and it was just reported yesterday there's another 26,000 in Europe. Yeah. Uh, It's overall disgusting and disturbing. And, Brooke, you are absolutely right. In May 2020, I started saying in the news that this is going to be Anthony Fauci's genocide using this drug called remdesivir, and he was going to kill hundreds of thousands of Americans. That's what I said. And she's right. Uh, right now, do you know how many are dead in America that have been treated with COVID-19 protocols? Do you know what the total is right now? Probably over 100,000. No, that have been treated for COVID-19 in America since 2020. It, sure it's, 704, it's, it's 704,000 as of last week. Holy cow. It was 550,000 at the end of December 2020. However, they've been pushing a new... They've been pushing a vaccine agenda now since December 14th, 2020. And based on the, I was with Thomas Renz uh, a week ago up in Colorado somewhere. I don't even know where it was. But I told him, I said, Thomas Renz, uh, you have to go. Anyway, I told him some stuff that he had to go look at. And your audience may not be ready for this, but there's a document I've talked about since October 2020 where the FDA listed on the infamous slide 16 Uh, 22 bullet points of diseases and life-threatening side effects of the coming COVID-19 shots to come out in December 2020, two months later. Right. Oh, we posted that document. 
Yeah, so that document's great. Everybody needs to know this, but I actually had not talked to Thomas about this document in the last, like, six weeks, even though we talk weekly. But when I was with him, all of a sudden I was in the car last week, and I was like, oh, Thomas, I forgot to tell you something. And this is brilliant. Everybody should know. You guys were with me, I think. Were you all in Anaheim with us? No, we or missed Anaheim, sadly. Okay. So in Anaheim, July 19th, Thomas Renz gets up on stage, the attorney out of Ohio, and he says, we just filed an injunction today against the emergency use authorization. We filed an injunction against it in Alabama, a federal injunction, because we just had a whistleblower tell us that she did a review of the CMS database and found that just this one data point, she just put in days of vaccines for Medicare patients in America. She put in the date they got the vaccine and then within three days post the shot. And it came up with 45,000 deaths in our Medicare services database, which was five times what's been reported in VAERS. Now, you have to understand this was just for three days post the shots. So as a result of this data, this, this woman came forward to Thomas Renz. They labeled her as a whistleblower, gave her protection, and then they ran with the data and then filed an injunction. This is the CMS database. Well, that was July 19th. Last weekend, I'm in the car with Thomas, and I'm like, Thomas. I was reviewing the 25-slide document from the FDA in October 2020. Can you believe it, Brooke? Tim, I'm reading that document again like a year later. Anyway, I'm going through it, and I'm reading the whole thing because I'm like just curious. I remember that the whole document was talking about the FDA was deciding what database it was going to be reviewing for vaccine safety and effectiveness when COVID-19 shots came out. And and I told Thomas in the car, I was like, Thomas, you got to go look at slide 15. This is going to be miraculous. you got to see it. And he goes, what's on slide 15? I said, the FDA actually highlights what database of the 11 or 12 different reporting systems in the government for vaccine injuries, they select and highlight in that presentation which one database they're going to be doing what's called rapid cycle analysis every 7 to 10 days when the shots come out. They're going to review all the data in this one database to determine are these vaccines safe or effective. And the very next slide is slide 16, and these were all the side effects they were going to be reporting on and doing research on to see are the vaccines causing any of these and do we need to be alarmed? And he goes, what database did they check or did they highlight? And I pulled it up on the phone and showed it to him. I said, look at slide 15. They highlighted in red in October 2020 that they were going to use CMS.gov's database. And I said, Thomas, have you seen one seven to 10 report day, day report from the FDA on safety and effectiveness every seven to 10 days since December 14th? And this guy went crazy excited, called the whistleblower at 4 a.m. in the morning, couldn't even sleep because he wanted her to run the data on slide 16 and find out how many people in Medicare have had those side effects that supposedly were supposed to be collected by the FDA once the shot started going out last December, that has never been reported on, and Thomas Renz got all the data for New York. Yesterday, I got for the state of New York. Yesterday, I got it for nine states, including New York, which is Texas, California, Missouri, uh, Florida, Nevada, Maine. She's, this whistleblower has been able to do all of that documentation, and I couldn't believe it. And what she did was brilliant. She took January 1st, 2020 for each of these states and wanted to know any of the listed side effects on slide 16 of the FDA document from October. She wanted to know, has this patient that's on Medicare in any of these states from January 1st, 2020 until the day they got their shots 
the first day they got their shots. Was there any diagnoses that are on slide 16 that existed in their medical charts on Medicare services on CMS.gov? If they did, they excluded them. If they already had those issues like heart disease, heart attacks, strokes in their past, in that year before the shots ever came out, those were excluded. She wanted to know how many people in Medicare from January 1st, 2020 until the shots started coming out in January, basically, of this year, 2021. She wanted to know once they got the shots, she did a 28 days post date of shot for all the people in Medicare who did not have these conditions beforehand, like no heart disease before they got the shot, no blood clot disorders before the shot, no paralyzed body parts before the shots, and we have all the data there. It was insane. So he sent this to me yesterday. And then I got on the phone with Senator Bob Hall, and I took him through the whole presentation with Thomas Renz on the phone here in Texas because we got the Texas data. And I wanted to make sure that he had it because he's in a special session, and we had to turn it over. And uh, it's just it's just awful, the numbers that are on here. So as far as Texas goes, Texas, within 28 days of people after getting the shots, there's 6,900 people in Medicare alone who have died within 28 days of getting the shot. Paralyzed people who have never had a body part paralyzed just in Texas, it's 1,800 paralyzed people in Medicare who never had a paralyzed body part, but within 28 days of getting their shots here in Texas, they're now paralyzed, multiple parts of their body. So this is a, this is a big deal. Uh, we're giving them all the data on all 16 data points. Amazingly, even from January 1st, 2020, until they got the shots, for example, there's over 8,000 Medicare patients in Texas who never had COVID in, from January 1st, 2020, up until they got their shot. But within 28 days, 8,000 of them got COVID. <laughs> so, so it just breaks it down for you that the FDA has let us all down. They said they were going to report on this information and get it from the CMS database. And uh, Thomas Renz has just been all over it, thank goodness. So uh, we're getting all the data. We're trying to collect all 50 states, and then we're going to turn this all over to lawmakers so they can know. Uh, that there has been trauma, unparalleled trauma. Just so you know, from these nine states, Brooke and Tim, I added up the numbers of deaths within 28 days of getting the shots. It's 31,000 confirmed dead in those nine states. That's more than what's been reported in VARS. And the big deal about this, CMS.gov's database is not voluntary. This is what's been diagnosed on record for doctors on doctor's notes and electronically submitted from the hospital or from the doctor's offices and it goes right into CMS.gov. So you've got 31,000 just in that age group. We're not talking about teenagers. We're talking about 65 years old and older in nine different states, 31,000 within 28 days. You've got a possible. That's horrible. If you, add up all, if you add up all 50 states, you're up around 150,000 most likely. That's 150,000 on top of 704,000 killed in hospitals. You are right, Brooke. This is the single mass murderer in American history ever. You've got 704,000 plus 150,000, most likely, dead in 17 months. That is uh, over 850,000. The largest death toll of all American soldiers ever in any war was Civil War. That was 660,000. Europe it up, 850,000. Uh, it has been the largest tragedy I can think of. I mean, how it's shocking. Did you... We've been out right at the very beginning speaking out against it. You have been out at the very beginning, Dr. Eric Caputi. We've all been out trying to get the information to people. You've got another great interview here today. Thank you so much for the information. But you've got your own show. Why don't you tell people how they can 
see you on the regular and get all this information on a regular basis from you. Yeah, that's great. Thanks for uh, offering me to share that. But uh, basically, if you go on the Internet, you can find me. Uh, somebody's interviewing me somewhere is how it feels. <laughs> Just kidding. Right. But you can go to thedrartistshow.com. V, it's T-H-E-D-R-A-R-D-I-S show.com. If you put in your email, it gives you access to a resources page. I'm just telling you, we're going to be launching this tomorrow on Friday. Today's Thursday. It's tomorrow, Friday, which is uh, October 1st. It's going to have 10 resources. Constantly, I get thousands of emails every week. What do I do? My loved one's in a hospital. Can you help me save my loved one? They're on remdesivir on this date. And then I send them information about how to patient advocate for them and then what documents to present to the hospital to help them change the protocols because we have real answers for that, guys. It didn't exist before about a week ago, which is great. And I should touch on it here before we end if you're okay. But if you go to thedrartistshow.com, put in your email, we'll send you a 67-page COVID document. You get my disease prevention cocktail, which includes vitamin C, magnesium, selenium, and apple pectin, and the doses for children, teenagers, and adults. Uh, and then you get up to speed on all of our biggest interviews and podcasts. And a lot of my media stuff is put on there. Every one of my podcasts I do are on there. Then you can follow me, the Dr. Artist Show, on Brighton TV, right? B-R-I-G-H-T-E-O-N dot TV every Wednesday morning, 10 to 11 Eastern time. That is live, and I'm doing stuff there. Uh, you can find my Healing Intel Show on thestealtruth.com every Wednesday night. If you want to watch that, that's, that's also done. And in that show, I actually specifically pick diseases and conditions, and I tell you how to treat them and fix them. That's the purpose of that show. So that's where I am. I'm all over the place. And then if wherever you find Brooke McGowan and Timbo, that's where I will be because I love these guys. <laughs> They're phenomenal. And one important piece of information for everybody, if uh, this is going to be recorded and shared, everybody needs to download it. If you can put a link to it, uh, I'll share the link with you so you can post it. Uh, but every time patients are going into hospitals still in America, they're saying that ivermectin, for example, is not an approved treatment protocol or drug for COVID-19, and they're all lying to you. I actually found 10 days ago or so on National Institutes of Health's website who has been putting all the mandates for COVID-19 treatment from the beginning. I found on their website a table of a chart. If you type in any search engine, NIH, and then type these words, table, 2E period. And then these words, characteristics of antiviral agents approved or under evaluation for COVID-19 treatment. This is on the NIH.gov's website. Put that in the search engine. Click the first link. It takes you to NIH.gov's website. Scroll up on that same page. Don't go off this page. Slide up and you're going to see this little gray table in the middle of the page. And it says click here to get the table. Click the button and then print out that document. It's three pages long. It's the table that tells all hospitals and doctors around the country what drugs are approved to treat COVID-19. And Tim and Brooke on that chart, which is last updated July 8th of this year, 2021, it lists remdesivir first as the first drug approved to treat COVID-19. And guess what the second drug on that chart is? Ivermectin. Ivermectin, and it gives you and the doctors and the hospitals the doses to treat all adults for COVID-19. So when they say to you it's not an approved treatment protocol, it is. They're lying to you. Has the NIH let the press know that they approved ivermectin to be treatment for COVID-19? No. Do you know? Well, Brian, it's gotten to the point where we want to get an update when they don't lie to us. Yeah. Like you know, don't tell us you're lying to us. You know, wake yeah. us up when you when you stop lying to us. They've lied yeah, so, from the very beginning on us. 
right? So everybody needs to go into hospitals if you're going to go. If you feel like you're going to go and you're going to die and you can't breathe, you just have to go. Tell them that you have, you demand that they put in the notes that they are not to treat you with remdesivir. They're only going to use ivermectin. And then hand them the dosage chart because it tells you that. You should also demand budesonide treatment like we mentioned a minute ago because it works extremely well against the Delta variant, which could be a totally different virus than SARS-CoV-2 and why some people are struggling to get over it just with ivermectin. If you can reduce the mucus load produced in the lungs from this virus, they can breathe and they'll live. The second chart everyone needs to print out when people now know that remdesivir and ivermectin are actual approved treatments for COVID-19, when they now know this, there's a second chart they need to print out. If you go to any search engine and type in cms.gov, our Medicare Services Department of the Government, go to, go to any search engine and type in cms.gov, 20% bonus payout, remdesivir, R-E-M-D-E-S-I-V-I-R. It'll pull up a chart on cms.gov's website and click the link and then print out the chart. Our own Medicare federal government is putting out a memo to all hospitals, and this is the memo. It says if you will treat all of our Medicare patients in America with remdesivir and choose these remdesivir codes for COVID-19 patients, we will pay you an additional 20% bonus to all hospitals and doctors who treat with remdesivir over any other treatment. This is bribing hospitals to poison you to death with a drug they know causes acute kidney failure and liver failure and complicates your ability to recover. Well, again, nothing new. That's what Governor Andrew Cuomo did in New York State. He bribed nursing homes to take COVID patients. The federal government was doing that as well. If you put them in the ICU, they get $36,000. You put them on a vent. So it's been going on from the beginning. Literally, this has been a power and profit play from the very beginning at the expense of tens of thousands of lives. Yep, and I would actually say this out loud. Hand them those documents and say, my life, my husband's life, my loved one's life, or my life is not for sale. And then hand them the documents and go, I already know they're bribing you to use remdesivir. I already know that that ivermectin, there's other options besides it. There's another drug. It's a steroid. It starts with an N. It's on that actual chart. Nizinitinab, it's on there. You can use that, too. It's approved also by the NIH just as much as remdesivir. So they're just bribing hospitals, and that's why they're saying we're going to choose remdesivir. I heard you speak about a restraining order on these hospitals. Could you tell patients or potential patients out there, give them some sort of hope and some sort of assurances that they have some power with the right to try, they have power with legal action, meaning using a TRO against these doctors that are trying to kill Americans, as you just said, they're being bribed to do so. Just maybe tell them a little bit about how they can do that. Sure. Every single patient goes into a hospital right off the bat. If you are the patient and your conscience, your conscience, you're awake, you can actually say to every doctor, I've seen, you, you don't have to reference me, but a lot of people do. They'll go, I saw Dr. Artis's uh, presentations on remdesivir. You're not using that. You can just tell them, I want you to document in my, in my records that you are not to use remdesivir. And then you look at them and you say, the moment you document that, if you actually use it, I'm going to file battery charges. I'm going to call 911, and I'm going to hold you accountable personally, Dr. So-and-so, and audio record it on your phone. You should audio record this, doc- this uh, conversation because you have every right to file battery charges against the hospital and that actual individual doctor if you tell him he's not going to do something 
demand them, have them record it in the documents, which they do do, by the way, because if they ever do give it to you, you can hold them liable for it. And then threaten them with it. Tell them you're going to do it. Secondly, if you don't think you can do that, you should do that. But if you don't think you can do that, they are doing something very criminal across the United States. Not only are they denying the patient's rights for adequate other treatments or acting like those aren't adequate treatments, they're also starving patients to death by not feeding them. Like no G-tube. Uh, they're not doing budesonide nebulizer. They'll say things like, oh, you can't use a nebulizer in a COVID ward. It spreads COVID all around the, in the air. No, it doesn't. This is totally bogus stuff. This is lying stuff. There is actually the act that you just referenced, Brooke. It's called the Right to Try Act. Anything as far as a protocol in a hospital, if you're asking for anything in addition to what they're already doing and they say no, you can actually file what's called a temporary restraining order, a TRO, for their inability to respect what's called the Right to Try Act. Of course, you have to get a, a lawyer, but I would actually just say it to them. I'm about to file a temporary restraining on you for the right to try when you're actually telling me you're not going to try this. I would ask for high-dose vitamin C infusions, upwards of 10,000 milligrams at minimum, into their veins. If they say no, this is, a, this is something you're asking for in addition to what they're already doing. You're not asking them to change their protocol currently. You're asking them to add on. That's what the Right to Try Act is for. If they're not feeding your loved ones for several days, everyone's going to die if they're malnourished. You have to feed them. So if they're denying a G-tube or a feeding tube to feed your loved one because they're intubated, you file a temporary restraining order on them when they say they're not going to do it. These are the legal ramifications that you have. If you want to be confident about how to handle this, if you go to brideon.tv, I actually did a whole episode on this on September 8th. Look up brideon.tv, click the downloaded or recorded videos, and actually look at September 18th, Dr. Artist Show, and watch the first 22-minute segment. I go through how to actually file battery charges. I go through how to actually file a temporary restraining order. So those are some of the things that you do have as a right now. Also, you have right now, I just gave you two documents you need to use that make that bring a very powerful conversation about you're not using remdesivir, there are other treatment options approved by the NIH. I know you're being bribed. My loved one's not for sale. You're not going to use it. And this is going to keep them off of you. They're not going to want to do it because you're going to be able to hold things over their head legally. So be strong. Be confident. I would I would actually ask for a couple things for the Right to Try Act, even if they're intubated. I actually just did an interview with Richard Bartlett. He's actually had people who are intubated use budesonide nebulizer treatments while they're being intubated. They remove the intubation tube do the nebulizer treatment, and these people have woke up totally fine when they were told they were going to be dead here in Texas. He takes patients through how to do that in a video I just recorded on Saturday. So if people want access to that, they can do that through the Dr. Artist Show too. So, or you can email us and ask us, and we'll send it to you directly. But he talks about how he has saved patients' lives doing that. Budesonide in a nebulizer is something you can add onto the protocol. Ivermectin is an option that's actually approved by the NIH. A feeding tube and feeding your loved ones gives them the best chance to survive if they're not feeding them. Those are just some options. There you go. Well, Brian, thank you so much. There's a reason why we call you America's doctor. You always give us great information. That statement you just made about hospitals telling patients they won't use a nebulizer in a COVID ward, that's exactly what they did to my friend. She's fortunate, though, believe it or not, up in the St. Lawrence River Valley, up in way northern New York, she did have a doctor that would give her ivermectin and would give her budesonide. So at least she had that going for her. But again, 
still a difficult time, and as you said, it looks like it's a brand-new virus. You and Dr. Bartlett are, are saying that this isn't SARS-CoV-2, but it looks like a brand-new virus. So people, follow the protocols. I'll just tell you right now, for every virus on the planet, if any of your audience is not taking 100 milligrams of zinc every day, y'all must not really be scared of this virus or any of the future viruses because zinc inside the cells of every cell in your human body is the only thing that stops a virus from replicating or causing disease inside of a cell. So, for example, when I say if you're taking ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine, they call those zinc ionophores. They help push zinc into the cell. If you don't have enough zinc in your body, if you're not taking 100 milligrams every day, you're going to be deficient, and the likelihood of being able to recover is going to be very difficult. So everyone needs to be supplementing right now because we're going into the cold and flu season. Those are both viruses. All cold viruses are coronaviruses. Influenza is another virus. None of them can live inside of a cell if you have enough zinc inside the body. Zinc at 100 milligrams every day for the rest of your life just don't even stop. It's brilliant, and we'll educate you more on the benefits of zinc in the future. But if you want to stop breast cancer, cervical cancer, uterine cancer, prostate cancer, ovarian cancer, these things are caused by estrogen dominance in every male and female on the planet. These are estrogen-driven cancers. Do you know the only reason why we have estrogen dominance, number one reason, is because we're all zinc deficient. And if anybody watching on this show goes, but Dr. Artis, the FDA says you can only take 30 to 40 milligrams a day. Yeah, follow that recommendation and all of you will get cancer. All of you. This is how they drive the narrative. They don't. They tell you what to take. It's not enough. They know you're going to get diseases as a result. Zinc deficiency leads to estrogen dominance, which is an acidic inflammatory condition ripe and prime for cancer to develop. So everybody should be taking 100 milligrams of zinc. Please don't email Brooke and Tim and say, but Dr. Artis said 100 milligrams. It only says the FDA says this. Listen, the FDA said they were going to try to protect you by evaluating safety of vaccines in October 2020, and they've never stopped killing people ever since or harming teenagers. I don't trust that group. You shouldn't either. No, and I love the metaphor you gave that the zinc ionophores, the hydroxychloroquine, the ivermectin are the guns, but zinc is the bullet. Zinc's the important part. So even if you're not taking ivermectin or HCQ, which helps the zinc get into the cells, at least make sure, folks, that you're taking enough zinc. Yep, Dr. Brian Artis, can't thank you enough for coming on. As always, a great pleasure, very informative. We just love having you on, and I'm proud to call you friends. Well, I think you two are phenomenal individuals, and I'm very proud of you for continuing to spread truth, bring awareness, alarming, warning people around the world of truths that they may not be knowing about. And, uh, I mean, there's lots of censorship going on, so I'm proud of you guys for continuing to stand for those people that are listening. Well, thank you. We're proud to stand with you. All right, folks, until next time, God bless you. God bless these United States. Keep fighting. Good fight. If you've got an insurance question, you could talk to a dentist. But instead of filling you in on ways to save on your policies, he'd probably be too busy filling in that loose crown. Or you could talk to your local GEICO agent, who will use their expertise to polish up your policies from home and auto to renters, motorcycle, boat, and RV, too. So while, yes, your dentist can save your smile, your GEICO agent could save you money, which will make you use that smile a whole lot more. To find a GEICO agent near you, visit geico.com slash local. With over 30,000 partner retail locations nationwide, Progressive Leasing has helped more than 7 million people with imperfect credit get the things they need. 
With Progressive Leasing, you can enjoy convenient, flexible lease-to-own purchase options on furniture, laptops, headphones, jewelry, mobile phones, appliances, mattresses, and more. Get what you need when you need it. Progressive Leasing offers lease-to-own purchase options, acquiring ownership by leasing costs more than the retailer's cash price. Visit progleasing.com to get started today. Download our app in iTunes and the Google Play Store. TED Talks Daily. I'm Elise Hugh. Context matters, especially when it comes to maintaining our weight. In today's talk from a TED salon in 2021, physical activity epidemiologist Olivia Afuso makes the case that weight loss and maintaining a healthy weight is not your personal responsibility. Instead, she says, social environments, systems around us are harming our health and we can do things to try and fix them. Put your teen athlete on the same field as the pros, so why would you take them to the same doctor? Children's Healthcare of Atlanta Orthopedics and Sports Medicine is Georgia's only nationally ranked program for teen athletes. Visit today at choa.org/teens. Making lifestyle changes to not only lose weight but to maintain a healthy weight long term is hard. Ask anyone who has ever tried. So let's consider my mom, for instance. She is 77 years old and has struggled to maintain her weight in order to achieve good blood sugar control over the past 30 years. You see, good blood sugar control requires maintaining a delicate balance between diet, exercise, and insulin injections. So early in the COVID-19 pandemic last year, my mom came to stay with me which led to a change in her usual dietary intake, away from meals provided to the elderly to more healthful home-cooked meals. What could possibly go wrong? Well, overnight, her blood sugar dropped dangerously low, and she was incoherent and nearly unconscious. Imagine having to inject your mom with a giant horse needle of glucagon to boost her blood sugar until she could take in calories on her own. I was terrified that she would not be okay or that I might need to call for emergency medical treatment during the pandemic. Luckily, she responded to the emergency injection and was able to consume enough calories to bring her blood sugar back up. But of course, this led to a high blood sugar, and she needed even more insulin, which is a fat-storing hormone, to get her blood sugar to a normal range. Although it took a coordinated effort with her doctor to find balance between her diet, exercise, and insulin regimen, I was happy to be social distancing with my mom. 
And she was able to lose some weight, even though she sometimes complained that I was acting like the food police. Nonetheless, I was grateful to have my biggest fan and run streak motivator with me during the lockdown. We became a village of two. Each day she would ask me, did you go run yet? You see, she would ride her stationary bike while I was working during the day and running at almost 10 p.m. each night. It was a tough year to say the least, but at least this arrangement allowed us to create a healthy and supportive environment together. So the problem is we often think of weight control as an individual challenge. And of course, to some extent it is, but we know that the environments in which we live, learn, work and play affect our ability to engage in healthful behaviors. When the world around us is what we might call an obesogenic environment, in other words, systemically and perpetually geared towards creating obesity, acting like weight loss or maintaining a healthy weight is a personal responsibility is simply not helpful nor effective. To put this in simple terms, I can't blame you for being overweight if restaurants and grocery stores, or at least all of the ones you can afford, sell an abundance of high sugar, high calorie processed foods at low prices. And then if you don't have access to good healthcare and fitness options and work multiple jobs, you don't have time to exercise anyway. That's like tying your hands behind your back, pushing you into a pool and yelling at you to swim. And if you have a genetic propensity towards excessive weight gain, Long-term weight maintenance may simply be unattainable given the current treatments available. Although individual health behaviors are important for positive health outcomes, these behaviors are driven by the context in which we as individuals find ourselves. Imagine what we could do if we optimize systems, policies, and practices for our physical, not to mention mental health. There are a lot of things that need to change, but that won't happen overnight, such as our work schedules, wages, the availability of healthy, affordable foods in every community, and public spaces that make walking, biking, and hiking safe, accessible, and inviting. As a society, we need to start thinking about these things as not only luxuries, but essentials for a high-quality, healthful life. But in the meantime, while we push collectively for our local and national governments to take our health and the systems that facilitate health seriously, there are also things we can do right now on our own, community by community. We know from research in animal and human populations that connections provided through social networks and communities are associated with better health and quality of life. So until we fix the systems that are harming our health, we can all work to buffer the negative impact of these systems. Research also shows that individuals living in socially cohesive communities, or at least those with strong social connections, have better health outcomes than those who are more socially isolated. 
And these social environments work to combat obesity-related behaviors and promote well-being, even in the face of systemic obesogenic conditions. And how do I know? My research team and I have been studying social environments and women's health. I've also observed the social support strategies of the women in my own network and their struggles with weight. Although their stories shed light on the lived experiences of navigating long-term health behavior change, how do they align with the science? In my work examining physical activity behaviors among Black women, for whom the prevalence of obesity is disproportionately higher than white women in the United States, we have been able to describe aspects of the social context that support their success. Even among overweight but active women, more than half engaged in physical activity with others for companionship, motivation, and accountability. One participant stated that, if my friends did not bug me, I would rarely work out. While another encouraged other women to get involved with a community that will push you towards your physical activity goals. She described the community as like-minded individuals. Also in our work with social physical activity groups, the members said that friendship, motivation, encouragement, and accountability were the most important factors for supporting their long-term physical activity success. From conducting research on how social networks and social support strengthen our ability to achieve and sustain health goals and supporting a network of hundreds of women, I can tell you there are three things that all of us should consider. Number one, find or build yourself a tribe of like-minded individuals for motivation and accountability. This could be a tribe of two, like my mom and me, or a group of individuals who enjoy walking in nature. Number two, create monthly wellness goals and share them with your tribe. One or two small changes and realistic expectations will do. And number three, celebrate your success. Don't just push each other, but throw parties and uplift each other for making progress. Remember, Maintaining a healthy weight takes more than diet and exercise. It takes the collective power of a village to create a healthy life. Thank you. PRX. Please leave us a review on iTunes.
please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.